OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet. Coming up on MoneyBeat, why Wall Street matters. We started talking about that a couple of weeks ago with the author William D. Cohen. We are having him back on to get at it again. Why Wall Street matters, what happened to trust, what has happened to transparency, how can those things be restored, how can Wall Street be made to function correctly again? This is MoneyBeat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to Money Beat, everybody. Paul and Stephen here in the studio in New York City. And if you are one of our uh, loyal listeners, and of course you're you're all loyal listeners, you listen to one podcast, you listen to them all, right? I, our, our, we have no churn rate here. We have no churn rate at Money Beat. None, none. None whatsoever. So if you have been listening, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we had on William Cohen, author of Why Wall Street Matters, as well as many other books uh, about this street, and we're having them back. So, William Cohen, welcome back. Great to be here. Thank you for having me back so soon. I really appreciate that. Well, we we had to because we, as we never answered the question, right? Because <laughs> we actually got right. We it, the first podcast, the entire first podcast was really just kind of explaining why this question is important. We never even got to really and get we, into well, the answer of it, though. Yeah, I mean, we just sort of had an enjoyable conversation, and then at the end, we're like, oh, wait, we have a minute left, and we haven't yeah. gotten to the right. main point of the podcast. Um, so we had so, to have you back. So, yeah, like, why does uh, Wall Street matter? So, as uh, we were chatting before we actually went on, went on the air, I mean, I think, unfortunately, too many people... Uh, have a very skewed understanding of Wall Street, if they understand it at all. And by the way, that's no fault of their own. I mean, I don't understand uh, Obamacare. I don't understand how an engine works. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't fly a plane. I mean, we are, live in a very specialized world, and Wall Street is an incredibly specialized place. And they've sort of built a black box around themselves, and they don't really want people to understand what they do, because that's what, you know, that mystery adds to their importance uh, in the world. Uh, but in fact... Wall Street is what I call the left ventricle of capitalism. It is right there, uh, you know, at the center of capitalism. It's what you know the ability to uh, take capital from people who have it, people who incredibly and it's an incredible thing, put their money in the bank every day and have the faith that it'll be there when they want it to take it out. Uh, that's so, so-called fractional banking system, and it's an amazing idea. I mean, just it's, it's an amazing, mind-blowing idea. Like money is an amazing, mind-blowing idea. The fact that we put our faith in money, but we, the fact that we put our faith in these banks. That's why big commercial banks look so imposing and impressive because they have to have this image of stolidity, so that when you go in there, you feel like. Like, okay, this thing's going to be around for a while. It's not going anywhere. If I want my money when I come in, I can get it. Of course, we know what happens when everybody tries to get their money out at the same time. That's a big problem, big flaw of fractional banking. But otherwise, that's fine. And, and I think that then what happens is all these people who save their money or put their money in the bank, the banks then take that money and lend it out to people who want to borrow it for uh, you know, expanding their mid or big size businesses, or to hire more people, buy more plant equipment, all the things that we expect and we just totally take for granted that these companies do to you know grow their businesses, hire more people, and pay them more, and, and all of the products and services that we just utterly take for granted. 
you know, everything from, you know, pickup trucks to Google to Facebook to widescreen TVs. And I'm not just talking about toys, right. but also food and gasoline, anything that we just literally take for granted would not be possible without Wall Street. In the book, in. you sort of take us through Apple and the importance Apple played, or Wall, Wall Street, Street played in the in the creation of Apple, which is now the world's biggest company. Right, and and it would not literally be possible to have an iPhone in your pocket, which has incredible com- computing power. I mean, it has literally changed the face of the world, right. and a billion of these things have been sold. I mean, if you think about it, there's what eight or nine billion people in the world. A billion people having these things is an amazing thing, and not. Not just people in wealthy countries have iPhones. I mean, they're ubiquitous, and it's not just iPhones. Of course, it's the whole mobile platform. And and if you go back and look at the history of Apple, and you read the S one, which I did for readers, so they don't have to do that. <laughs> but you will see it's an amazing document, which is an example of smart regulation. The SEC was created in part to require those kinds of filings, so that people can have information about what they're investing in and can and can learn the financial uh, performance of a company like Apple. Turned out Apple was doing incredibly well. The the, uh, initial venture capital investors uh, were looking to cash out. I mean, the whole history of Wall Street can be captured in in a 45-page S1. Of course, now they're much longer and much more complicated and much more legalistic. But (laughs) it's a a really beautiful document if you're kind of into this kind of thing. One of the other things I think that also gets lost is, and you saw this in the Goldman hearing on Abacus, and you know, me stuck here, actually live blogging that back. It's <laughs> seared into your memory. Well, yeah, it's seared you, into you're my gonna memory. have to. Yeah. Some so, people might not. Yeah. So they, what basically, that was. they you know, Abacus was uh, you know. A, the, Goldman got fined for creating a product and then um, synthetic CDO, synth- synthetic CDO. Um, a credit default obligation. Right. And right? isn't that what it's? Uh, no, no, no. Collateralized, collateralized debt. debt, debt obligation. You're, I'm, I'm mixing up my right. thing. Collateralized debt, debt obligation. obligation. Right. And and the permanent subcommittee on investigations Agents. led by Senator Levin had a day long hearing. Right. My favorite part of which was they put Lloyd Blankfein. I think it's seven Last. o'clock at night. Yes. Uh, and, he, and they proceeded. They proceeded to basically debate market making, and that's what I wanted to get right. into because that that sort of also gets into you know the Volcker rule and all that. And it's a gray area, but the importance of sort of market making into Wall Street and providing liquidity that then filters out into corporate America. Well, they were they were literally. I mean, that was an example where they were literally talking two different languages. Yeah. I mean, uh, they were talking past each other. Uh, uh, what Lloyd was saying was absolutely right, and what Levin was sort of talking about Wall Street writ large was absolutely right. But I think it shows that even our government leaders, what, I mean, and Senator Levin is be- better than most, but he, of course, used that hearing to 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 make fun uh, of Wall beat Street up and beat up Goldman. Uh, Goldman. And, of course, that was very politically uh, adept at that time. And to take emails out of context, I actually uh, uh, thank Senator Levin a lot because in my book about Goldman, I took those 900 pages of documents, which I would never have gotten in any other way. There was a gold mine and basically explained how Goldman – uh, put on what became the big short. I know we're getting diverted a little bit. Uh, put on the big short in 2006 yeah. that they profited from immensely in 2007. Basically saved Goldman while everyone else on the street was doing the exact opposite. But but I think that's an example. You know that hearing is an example, and I think things that uh, uh, Senator Warren has said and, and uh, uh, 
you know, Bernie Sanders has said and Hillary Clinton has said and even Donald Trump, of course, has said, it, it just it just shows how little even our elected leaders are. Uh, and I, I don't know whether even is the right word, but our elected leaders just do not understand how Wall Street works. Again, going to the point of how poorly Wall Street has gotten its message out. A- and it's to its own detriment at this time, point, because now we don't know whether we're supposed to hate Wall Street or love Wall Street during the campaign. Everybody was hating on Wall Street. Now that Donald Trump is president, he's surrounding himself with Goldman Sachs people more, you know, even yesterday, uh, more. And Dina Powell promoted suddenly after three weeks to deputy national security advisor. Who knows what to believe? And and so I thought it was really important that that Wall Street is too important to be a mystery. And the time, you know, literally, I know it's happened before. We were talking about this other book, <laughs> Men and Mysteries of Wall Street. I mean, people have made this attempt in different centuries to explain Wall Street. But basically, uh, there's been this vacuum ever since the financial crisis where people are just beating up on Wall Street. And again, it's a little weird for me, who, of course, has been critical of Wall Street, to be put in the position of defending Wall Street. But they won't defend them themselves. And so somebody has to speak up for the importance of this left ventricle of capitalism. I don't think we'd want to live in a world without Wall Street moving this money around. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting because when this when your book landed on my desk and I started reading it, it reminded me of this other book that I have uh, that I brought here to the podcast and I showed it to you and you just mentioned it, called Men and Mysteries of Wall Street. And what was amazing to me is that it kind of starts off almost like a travelogue. It's, it was first published 1870 and it is literally an explainer on what Wall Street is at a time when – you didn't. You certainly didn't have mass media like you have today. You didn't have uh, mass education. You most people, if they even heard of Wall Street, they had no idea what it was. So the book is literally explaining everything about Wall Street: how it operates, what banks are, what trading is, what the stock exchange. I mean, it literally it describes how the stock exchange physically looks because back then people didn't even physically see. You never saw you know, CNBC. You know, you didn't see the stock exchange. But then at the end of it, it starts talking about the speculations, the panics, the crashes, all the things that get people furious about Wall Street. And by the end of the book, you realize it is actually – it's an apology for Wall Street in the, in the old Greek sense of that word, which is, which is a defense. And it really struck me that, that that's what your book is also. It is, it's a defense of Wall Street. You know? And, and it, 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 you know, it points to how often Wall Street gets itself into exactly. trouble. But basically, Wall Street's been in and out of trouble its whole existence. I mean, the, the reason that the capital of the United States is in Washington is because of the first financial crisis. We know this from the play The Hamilton and also from Ron yeah. Chernow's book and probably from the history books if we want to study them. But you know, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton made a deal – so that that the United States, after the Revolutionary War, could get out of its first financial crisis by moving the capital from New York and then to Philly while Washington was being built, and then literally to the swamp in Washington. Uh, and there have been financial crises ever since mm-hmm. then. And usually what has happened in other times uh, is that we say, okay, that was bad. We're in a bad way. This isn't a good thing. But we've got to get the engine back up running again. We've got to take the sand out. We've got to clean out the pistons and all of that and get this thing back up running. Because if we don't, it's going to hurt the American economy. And 
you know, in 2008, I think we sort of forgot that. And, and I think it's because everyone was really angry at Wall Street. There was a lot of bad behavior that the Justice Department did not prosecute. They gave Wall Street a big time pass. And uh, there was a vacuum. And into that vacuum stepped the regulators who decided to throw sand into the beautiful machine instead of cleaning it out. And I think that was a mistake. And maybe we have a little bit of a corrective coming now. Let's, uh, let's take a break. It's a good place to take a break. There is much more to talk about. We'll come back next more with William Cohen. So how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. Need to check in on Wall Street? Listen to Heard on the Street and stay one step ahead of the headlines only on WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to Money Beat. We are speaking today with William D. Cohen, author of Why Wall Street Matters. Uh, if you listened to our earlier podcast, that was part one. This is part two. So important we had to do it in two parts. Uh, so much to talk about, really. And I think, you know, I, I, I think you mentioned what I think gets to the very heart of why we have all these problems with Wall Street. And you talked about the black box of Wall Street and how that's a, that is a self-imposed black box. They build a box around them. They don't really want people to understand what goes on on Wall Street because there is an advantage to them having that information and you not having it. That, to me, is a really big problem. And I think that it, that is why a lot of these problems – Happen. That's why there is a lot. But I'll just. I mean, I, I actually wonder if it's more basic than that. I mean, is it just Wall Street or is it just banking in general? Because when you know, sort of capitalism, you know, has its fits and starts. The banks are the ones who lend out your money and are going to you know call that loan due if things go into you get into trouble. Um, isn't that sort of more like the basic, like sort of, I think, you know, the, when, when we talk about the populism, you know, sort of anger toward Wall Street and that has existed for centuries, isn't that more at the root of it? Well, I, I think let's, that, ask, let's ask yeah. our expert. Well, well, look I, at I, me. Let's look at our expert. I, first of all, let's let's be clear. There have been financial crises before there was Wall Street. Yeah, before yeah. there was the yes, United States yeah. of America, there right. were financial crises. So part of financial crisis is human nature. Yeah. Okay, And I don't think we can legislate away human nature. You're not going to really change human nature. That's evolved over thousands of years. That's number one. Uh, and, and number two, I think that uh, people have uh, gotten to a point where – they don't really understand it. Um, Wall Street is actually not that complicated. Uh, I think basically what I described at the beginning of people putting their money in a bank and then the bank turning around and lending it out, that uh, ability to provide, take capital from people who have it and provide it to people who want it is basically what Wall Street's function is all about. And, and you know, it gets more elaborate from there, but it's not that complicated. I, I also think that you know, financial crises – uh, 
sometimes Wall Street causes them. Sometimes Wall Street does not cause them. I think that Wall Street exacerbated the 2008 uh, a crisis. It was probably started in many different uh, places. And, and, ex- and what I say in the book is it expresses itself. It first expresses itself on Wall Street, the first signs or in the banking system, the first, um, which is natural, right? I mean, as you said, they can uh, call a loan if they call too many loans in or if people default on too many loans. Or, and, and then people start worrying about the safety of their money. See, the interesting thing in 1929 is it was literally uh, a stampede of individuals wanting their money back. It was a breakdown in the fractional banking system. Uh, and that created a run on, quote unquote, runs on the banks. And that's the way financial crises had been expressing themselves for years. In 2008, it was very different. Ever after uh, Roosevelt created the Financial Deposit Insurance Corporation and people's deposits now are uh, insured up to 250000 per account, individuals weren't panicking in 2008. That wasn't an individual panic. What that was was an institutional panic. All the institutions were freaking out because they have a lot more than 250000 at risk, and they were worried about getting their money out. They were worried that Bear Stearns was going to go under, and that you know, then they were worried Lehman was going to go under, and Merrill was going to go under, and, and they st- all those people who provided short-term financing, overnight financing, to these banks, to these Wall Street firms, said, "You know, forget it. Your credit's no good anymore." And that was that was literally the liquidity, the lifeblood of the financial system being uh, the plug being pulled up, pulled away from the wall. And also, there's also a difference too, because we, I mean, we talk about financial crisis. The difference between a financial crisis that we saw in 2008 and more along the lines of a stock bubble, which we saw in 2000, which where the banks were not front and center. Well, I mean, one of the things – well, and I think that they were front and center. Well, they in, were – In the way that, you know, that they had underwritten all of this. Right. Uh, but they weren't at risk of going out of business look, is what I meant. Look, if you look at the history of these things, when uh, things get really bad is when it's a credit bubble right. and a credit panic. Uh, the, the, cre- the, the, you know, the debt market is now, what, two to three times the size of the stock market. It used to be much bigger than the stock market, but since the stock market's at 21,000, it's caught up. But you know, when the debt markets panic, when people can't get credit, that's when you know, that's when a real crisis sets in. And that's what happened in 2008, and that's what happened in 1929. And, you know, so we've, people don't think about the credit. That's right. another thing people don't think about. They don't think their debt markets. What does that mean? Can a bond trade up and down? What are you talking about? That They can understand GE going up and down uh, or News Corp going up and down, but they cannot understand a bond going up and down. You know, a, a, a big part of it, too, I think, comes down to, especially when you're talking about a system which is based on fractional reserve banking, right, which is you put in $1 and the bank lends out 10 a big part of that, of keeping that system working, becomes trust. You, Which is you, an incredible thing. And, and we mentioned that briefly in part one, but we didn't get to talk about it a lot. And uh, it, it's something I think is really kind of underappreciated. It's magic. It's yeah. a magic trick. It's right. alchemy. It's in, I mean, it, just like we you know, believe that our, our paper money is worth... A hundred dollar bill is worth a hundred dollars. I mean, that's mind blowing. It's just a piece of paper. Right. I mean, but, and, and the fact that we are willing you know, to, to, to we work hard for our money, and we're willing to put it into this bank, whatever yeah. that thing is, and believe that it'll be there when we want it. And it guess what? Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, it is. Yeah. And, and and it's literally a miracle. It's it's a magic trick. It's incredible. And 
when it breaks down, it breaks down in a big way because everybody freaks out and thinks, oh, my God, I can't get my money. And that's a self-defeating right. loop. So the, the, and that's what happened in 2008 with it, between the institutions. With the institutions. Right. They just all freaked out and said, I can't get my money. Fidelity, Federated, whatever it was, I can't lend my money to Bear Stearns overnight anymore or Lehman or Merrill or whatever it is because I may not get it back. I'm a, it's, it's not guaranteed yeah. by the FDIC. And I got a lot right. more than 250000 on the line. And, and I, I think part of that – I think trust and transparency then are, are very much interlinked. And when you don't have transparency, it is much harder to have trust, which is why when you have one hiccup, it can turn into a, a stampede. And I just mixed metaphors there, but you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I, I wonder how do you – and I have thoughts on this. But how do you, how do you restore trust? Well, I mean, I think uh, Wall Street has done itself no favors after 2008. Um, you know, it would have you could have restored trust if the Justice Department had, uh, you know, paraded off some uh, bankers who were responsible for causing what went wrong yeah. in handcuffs and indicting them and trying them and, and finding them guilty. Instead, they tried to prosecute the two Bear Stearns hedge fund managers, and they failed to prosecute, and, and basically that was it. So that would have restored trust. Then uh, they compounded that error by, I think, extracting these multi-billion dollar fines out of Wall Street shareholders. They didn't even hold the people at the banks right. responsible. They took it out of the shareholders' hide. And then they created these statement of facts, which was a total whitewashing. So then you have $200 billion in what I call extortion payments to the government uh, from the banks. And if you want to hold people responsible, hold them responsible. You know, you know, it's like a child. If you don't punish a child for its bad behavior or his or her bad behavior, they're going to repeat it. And so there was no punishment. So now, and, and then you compound it. My big concern, and has been for a long time, that we have a compensation system that rewards bad behavior and doesn't uh, uh, force these guys to have skin in the game like they used to when they were private <laughs> partnerships. And so the, the, the incentive system is wrong. So you, you have all of those things combined, and then you have federal regulators like Dan Turillo, who's, of course, resigning now, but he took it upon himself to make sure, you know, what I like to say is to put sand into the gears of the beautiful machine to make sure that Wall Street never has another financial crisis, which I get that sentiment. But in fact, by doing that, you're condemning the American economy to grow at a 2% GDP growth. And I think we need to break out of that rut that we're in on, yeah. on GDP growth. Why do you think there was no one let off in handcuffs? You know, I, there's clearly, I mean, we've heard that repeated over and over again. That's, you know, the mistake they made. But what, I mean, there was obviously, was there just a lack of will? I mean, it seems like the government Well, I've asked, I've asked this to Preet Bharara, you know, our former yeah. U.S. attorney in the <laughs> Southern District of, of New York. Um and I've written about him a few times, and uh, I, I, I mean, in my book about Bear Stearns, uh, which you know sort of carefully documents what happened to Bear Stearns and where it went wrong, including at the hedge funds, starting with the hedge funds, uh, and there was clearly wrongdoing that they knew of. There was there was clearly, according to emails that I saw and included in the book, and memos that I saw and included in the book, there, there was clear intent. Uh, for these guys to, uh, I think, deceive their investors. Uh, and uh, the 
Eastern District of New York, which prosecuted that case, not the Southern District, you know, didn't my book came out before that prosecution. They could have easily taken the information in that book. They didn't. They chose to prosecute in a different way. Uh, you know, good good for them. That's their job. And they failed in that prosecution. I think after that, they between that and the Holder memo, which basically uh, the Justice Department said uh, we have to be careful in prosecuting yeah. corporations. You know, that chilled the whole thing. I, I was going to say Holder. He said it in a he test in congressional testimony. I mean, he, he, he. I don't know if he really intended to say it, but he came out and said it. We, he basically said, we are afraid to prosecute the banks because we're afraid of upsetting the system. And, and that goes back to a memo that he wrote in 1999, right. I believe. So, uh, you know, and his deputies said the same thing. And so you sort of have this overarching feeling that if you prosecute institutions you're risking Arthur Anderson effect, and they didn't want to, which, of course, the accounting firm that went out of business. And and so I think that instead of justice, you had extortion, uh, and you did not have any reprimanding uh, for their bad behavior and no accountability, and now you have an incentive system that hasn't changed. You still are rewarding bad behavior. You know, I mean, the idea of a, a, a functioning capital market is risk and reward, and if you take a risk, there's a reward. But if the risk blows up in your face, there has to be, you have to suffer the consequences, which is you lose your money. Nobody who took the risks lost their money. We, we, we socialized the risks and right. privatized the gain. That was what was said at the very first hearing, the Senate hearing in the Bear Stearns uh, uh, investigation. I think it was uh, Chris Dodd said that. You, you're socializing uh, the, the risks and privatizing the gain. Well, that just is unacceptable. That has to change. And nobody's talking about that. Dodd-Frank right. didn't do that. Right. Vocal Rule didn't do that. We're not Donald Trump talking about repealing all that doesn't do any of that. I mean, you're begging, you're, create, you're rewarding very smart people for taking big risks with other people's money. And guess what? That's exactly what they're going to do. And they're not going to stop doing that right. until they get punished or held accountable for that. Now, we talked about this a bit in, in the previous podcast, but get into how you would change because this gets to you know it's, this is about compensation. Your what you would do to change compensation so that you would sort of flip this dynamic. So again, I'm not suggesting anything that hasn't already been done. If you look at the history of Wall Street, let's say from 1789, for instance, to 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 1970, uh, that's a long time. Okay, that's uh, uh, nearly 200 years. In those first 200 years of Wall Street's existence, they were all small, undercapitalized private partnerships. Partners literally became partners by having their money in the firm, their own capital at risk every single day. And basically, before they became limited liability corporations, they also had their full net worth on the line. So that is the DNA of Wall Street, right there, getting rewarded for taking prudent risks with your own money. In 1970, as I talk about in the book, DLJ came along, great firm, everybody admires and loves DLJ, Donaldson, Lovkin, and Genrat. They decided to flout the... Uh, New York Stock Exchange rules, and Dan Lufkin went to his first New York Stock Exchange Board of Governors meeting with an S-1 in his hand that DLJ had just filed. That was against the New York Stock Exchange rules. They got the New York Stock Exchange to change the rules, and DLJ went public, became the first firm to go public. All of them uh, soon followed on famously with, with Goldman Sachs going public in May of 2009. Even Lazard, where I worked, which was famously and proudly a private partnership, they went uh, uh, public in uh, uh, May of 2005. Goldman went public in, in May of two, 1999. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you have this whole dynamic on Wall Street changing. And so, to me, if you want to 
put that genie, you're not going to make Goldman go private again. That's not going to happen. There's not enough capital in the world for that. But my view is, okay, let's take the, and I've said this a lot of times, and probably people are sick of me saying this, is you take the 500 guys at the top, or women, mostly guys, unfortunately, at the top of these firms, and who make the decisions about who to hire and who to fire and how much money bonuses people should get and who gets promoted and what business lines to be in and how to, how to allocate capital. There are 500 of those people in each of these big firms. Those people should have their full net worth on the line again so that they don't take their eye on the, off the ball. So they get rewarded for taking prudent risks as if their own capital were in the firm just like the old days. It's in the DNA of these firms. It's not that foreign an idea. Of course they don't want to do it. Of course they don't right, want to right. do it. Who would want, yeah. Who would want to do that? Right. But if there when were, you don't have to. If you yeah, don't have yeah. to, but if there were real leadership on Wall Street, if Lloyd Blankfein were a real leader, in my opinion, he would step up and say, nobody's telling us we have to do this. I want to do it because it's the right thing. And chances are, guess what? They would never get called on. I mean, it would never – I mean, the chances of Go- – I mean, I guess Goldman could go down the tubes and be liquidated and creditors could go after Lloyd's uh, fortune. But, you know, if that happens, that should happen, which is exactly what happened when Goldman was a private company for the first right. 150 years of its existence. How much does – you know, there's a lot of talk after the crisis about clawbacks and sort of in, in, in turning bonuses and, and all that. How close does that get to even accomplishing it, what you're talking jo- about? It's a joke. It's mm-hmm. a joke. That That's like lipstick on the pig. Uh, hmm. I mean, I mean, who 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 got clawed back? I think uh, uh, the the woman who was in charge of the Treasury Ina, Group at J.P. Yeah, Morgan Ina Chase, Drew. Uh, Ina Drew, she got a claw back. She, I mean, she still walked off with what a hundred million. She got clawed back of thirty million. I don't know if that hundred million is right, but directionally. And then I think the person who was in charge of. Uh, of some of the shenanigans at, at Wells Fargo, they talked about claw bang, claw ba- uh, clawing back uh, that person's compensation. But basically, uh, n- can you name an instance where somebody was clawed back? It just doesn't. I'm, and I don't even. Talk, I don't want to take people's money away. I just want them to do the right thing. And, and right. since uh, I, I'm a student of human nature, human nature, and People do what they're rewarded to do. And so if you reward them to take big risks with other people's money, that's what they'll do. If you reward them to take prudent risks as if it were their own money because their full net worth is on the line, guess what? Those 500 smart people at the top of the firm, that's exactly what they will do. And we'll all be safer as a result. So right. just do it. Yeah, it's they, the right thing to do. They don't get any dumber if you change the incentives. No. They, they, they just will be forced to do the right thing. And that's fine. You know, Maybe we, you know, there was a time when we could – Drive, there were no speed limits. We could drive without a seatbelt. We didn't have a headrest. We could probably you know, have a whiskey bottle and ride right, on the right. wrong side of the road. But guess what? Over time, we have seatbelts. We have speed limits. You're not supposed to drink and drive. You're not supposed to text and drive. There are things that make the world safer, and they're just common sense. This is one of those things. And guess what? It's in the DNA of these firms. It's not foreign to yeah. them. They know exactly. I mean, Goldman Sachs always talks about with pride, oh, we're still a partnership. We still think about ourselves as partners and behave as if we your partnership. Well, put your money where your mouth is, Mister. Do you uh, do you, do you follow new tech at all? You know, like fintech and Bitcoin, blockchain, all that. Yeah, I've stuff. written a and lot you, about Lend Club you? and yeah, and others. And do you think? I mean, I, I've written a lot about Bitcoin, as, as folks listening probably know, and as Steve Grosser knows, of course. And I do think that there is a real chance and an opportunity that you know some of these technologies, in some form or fashion, can come along, bring about some transparency, bring about you know, force some rules on Wall Street that will make them behave better, some of the things you're talking about. I mean, have you looked into that at all? Do you think there's a possibility there? Well, I think there was a lot of promise, taking fintech first. Uh, yeah. uh, I think there was a lot of promise in fintech as being a disruptor. 
to the banking system and being – I mean basically the banking system now after the financial crisis is – Pretty is, is an oligopoly, uh, uh, pr- pretty close to being you know nearly a big monopoly. Uh, uh, very powerful. Those firms have gotten more powerful, and in part because they're the world's best. Yeah. I mean, people come to Wall Street for a reason. It's the world's best at what it does. So, uh, and there should be rewards for that. Uh, uh, but I think that uh, there is a chance for disruption with fintech. I mean, if you take. But basically, it's been on a, lo- a small scale. I mean, if you take Lending Club. Okay, right. so so you know, if, if credit card company is charging you, you know, twenty three percent to have a balance on your credit card, and someone else comes along and says, "I'll refinance that twenty three percent, and now you can pay me fifteen percent." Well, that's eight basis points. So that you know, you're going to do that all the time, and you can do that if for ten thousand or fifteen thousand through the internet and through the auspices of something like a Lending Club or all these other competitors, and. Uh, uh, th- that kind of makes sense, but a, a bespoke loan to Steve Schwartzman at, at Blackstone so that he can buy, you know, Hilton. Right. I, I mean, that's not going to yeah. be done uh, by the internet and by Lending Club. I'm right. sorry, uh, uh, you know, uh, they, I, I, you know, I, I, for a while I was talking to them about why don't they take up the issue of IPOs, doing IP. I mean, there was this whole movement, you know, to, towards uh, IPOs that bucked. The, the system of the way the underwriters and institutional right. investors uh, and, and and basically the, the way Google went public and, you know, that basically has floundered too. Right. I mean, so... Right. Right. Bit, Google did what was essentially a Dutch auction a Dutch online. Auction. They did not go the traditional IPO right. route and, and it worked for them. It, it worked for them and it worked... They're by, Google. <laughs> well, it worked. It worked. I mean, they uh, uh, probably... And they faced a lot of criticism. A lot of, and yes. a lot of people were, you know, is this going to actually work and, you know... It was a hotly contested decision. And that decision. was basically the last hurrah yeah, for right. for Hambrick, uh, you know, doing that. Bill Hambrick was the pioneer of, yeah. of this. Uh, so, you know, why why can't you use the Internet to find investors in these new companies? Why do you have to go through underwriters? I mean, you know, just it's like, you know, the publishing business. You know, I could publish my books, you know, online myself. Sure. Uh, right. But there's value in having, uh, you know, Random House mm-hmm. underwrite my a book right. uh, project. There's value in having Goldman Sachs underwrite Snap Inc. I mean, there's just they, they they know where the investors are. They're familiar with the process. You know, you could edit your own book, or you could have you know uh, your editor at Random House edit mm-hmm. your own book. You could take yourself public through the, the internet marketing. Or, you know, the marketing and and in the investors and right. you know, there's a reason these guys can charge six or seven percent of the proceeds for for their work. I mean, Snap, ninety seven million dollars in fees. Uh, you know, look, a lot of these uh, startup Silicon Valley firms, I mean, they are finding ways to get money before they go IPO. I mean, of course. Zuckerberg was dragged kicking and screaming into taking Facebook public. I mean, he did not want to do it. Well, I'm, I'm not going to feel I'm sorry not. for Mark. Yeah. No, of course not. Uh, and it wasn't that, the money. It no. wasn't like he was going to make work. He just well, didn't well, want to deal we, with now, now being we, a publicly traded well, company. We famously have now Uber and right. uh, not wanting to go public and being the largest uh, private, one of the largest private companies, although I think Aramco probably is the largest uh, yeah, private yeah. company. <laughs> uh, yeah. Soon to go public, though. I mean, uh, look, you know, you, you, the, the nice thing is you don't have to go public. I'm not talking about necessarily going public. That's one product. But I mean, I think it's going to be very hard for these new fintech companies to disrupt because you know they're very, it's a very capital intensive industry and there are huge barriers to entry and you know JP Morgan has what three close to 3 trillion in capital. I'm yeah. sorry, uh, lend, lending club for, you know, 
is sci-fi is not going to have, or whatever it is, so-fi is not going to have uh, you know, $3 trillion right. in capital. And there's also like questions. I mean, there are a lot of questions around you know, regulatory and w- what's going to happen with fintech in terms of regulation. And also the loosening of regulation on Wall Street is not a good thing for public fintech as well. Yeah. I mean, like, there, there's a lot of – I mean, fintech had sort of a brief – like the lending clubs, the sofas, they had a brief, you know, pop where everyone was really excited. But that seems to have tempered a bit in, recent, yeah, and in the, the recent the, last year. The, the, the thing I think is very interesting when you look at one of the sort of core concepts behind blockchain and, and Bitcoin is this idea of an open ledger that is transparent and that everyone can see the transactions going in. And, you know, with, with Bitcoin especially, the – Identities are encrypted and anonymous, but the transactions are public. And essentially, what you end up doing is you take this entire um, you take this entire system of double of double entry accounting, right? Double bookkeeping accounting, where you have the two ledgers, and you're you're putting a third ledger on top of that, which is this open ledger that everybody can see. It is a, a very transparent system, and the you know, the, the banks are interested in it. They're all looking at it. I think they see the benefits of it. They're trying to figure out if they can offset the cons of it, which is they don't want too much transparency. I mean, Goldman doesn't want you to know every position they have. Lehman, Lehman doesn't exist anymore. You know, all these other, they don't want you to know every position they have. But there is a benefit there to having a system where everyone kind of knows what what is at stake and what the risks are and where the money is and whether or not it's actually there or not. And I, I think it's going to be a long process if it can even work. Um, you know, there, there's questions about whether this can even work on Wall Street. But if it can work, I think there is a big opportunity there to to put some transparency into this whole process by turn, increasing the trust in it. I I wonder how. I mean, I do think that what Wall Street finds is the you know sort of clearinghouse capabilities of a blockchain, right? Like, and speed that up. It doesn't take three days for transactions yeah. to sort of. They like clear. that. They don't they like the that. transparency. And I don't know. And they I don't want and I do it. wonder how much that would add to the trust, like especially the trust that disappeared after the sort of crisis. Because I mean, that was you know. I mean, granted. There was a lack of transparency there, but you know these yeah. companies were highly leveraged, right? Um, right. And didn't they didn't necessarily they, have the money. They, they don't want you to know that. And I think a lot of these early blockchain efforts have floundered because of that. The banks realized, wow, if we really implement this in the broadest way possible, this is not going to be good for us. This is not what we want. And, and I think you've seen a lot of proof of concepts that haven't gone anywhere because of that. That's the the trick is to figure out how to get around that. Well, I think a lot of these uh, Wall Street firms necessarily nowadays are technology companies. They are yeah. forced yeah. to grapple. And I think they they have to be interested in this. They have to be exploring this. I mean, uh, you know, Goldman prides itself on being a technology company uh, these days. Uh, so, I mean, if there's something for them that they can extract and is a benefit for them, they they will do it. If blockchain becomes useful to them, they will do it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, they they price discovery is not their favorite thing. They 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 want they want to control prices. Sure. Uh, they probably weren't thrilled to put derivatives on an exchange, but I mean, one of the reasons there was a crisis is because you know uh, Goldman had marked down the value of its mortgage book 
well before the rest of the street, mm-hmm. and then uh, went to AIG and say, "Hey, uh, these th- these things are now worth sixty cents in the dollar. I-, I had them insured with you through credit default swaps at a hundred cents. You owe me money. Yeah. You owe me money." And, a- and AIG said, "Hold on, what are you talking about? Right. I have these right. marked at ninety nine cents." And so that whole business of price discovery for- precipitated the collapse of AIG and that bailout of AIG that famously everybody is so still upset about. Uh, you know, so price discovery, but is really important. Mm-hmm. And and but the banks, you know, if you're a trader, you don't want, you know, you you exactly. you, you want it to be uh, you want it to be a, as opaque, a, opaque as, po- as possible. Right, right. But I don't see how blockchain necessarily solves what we're just describing there. Maybe I, I'm just not seeing it. Uh, it potentially can. Where I mean, where, it, no, it where can. one firm is like marking it at one price and another firm is marking it. Well, because every another. every tra- I mean. I mean, Look, these I were, mean, these, you, they you want to have a, a private book where you market. value the things, you know, I mean. But that was the problem is these secure, a lot of these securities were not trading. No, they were, was, li- they, they were right. liquid. So. But, yeah, but I mean, that's because they were saying there was no market for them. They were, they were a liquid, but it wasn't like there were no trades whatsoever. Well, In and, a system and, like this, every trade would you would see, you would know what the value was that you paid previously. Well, it's, and, and it's one, there. Of the re- one of the reasons there was no liquidity is because there was no integrity on it. Yeah. People weren't willing to say what the securities were really worth, and then they were hope they didn't want to mark them down on their books because right. they were so leveraged that a two percent change in the asset you're leveraged fifty to one a two percent change in the value of those assets wipes out your right. Equity, and that's exactly what happened at, at Bear Stearns yep. and Lehman and Merrill, and so of course they didn't want to do that. In in this system, those trades, everybody would be able to see those trades. You wouldn't be able to say this is worth X if it's really only worth Y. You just wouldn't be able to keep that on your books because the trades are there. Right. The question, even if there's only if, if, one. If the trades don't happen, though, there could right. still be a right. huge disconnect between the valuations. Right. But there were trades happening back well, then. Well, Goldman you know, famously insisted, right. mark-to-market firm, we will take the hit. They were taking hits in 2007 the, the, you know, when everyone else was still showing these things at 100 cents yeah. on the dollar. They wrote them down. And took the hits through their equity. They were making so much money, nobody even noticed. Yeah. And then when everyone else collapsed, they were sitting pretty. Right. I mean, what Goldman did to get through the crisis, as I uh, document well in my, in my book about Goldman, is, is an amazing story. It's an amazing story. And I have to thank Senator Levin for that because his hmm. 900 pages <laughs> that, yeah. that he released that nobody ever went through but me uh, is fascinating. Uh, I think we have to wrap Probably. Yeah. We, I, I just looked at I didn't realize we've been on as long as we've been on. But uh, Well, thank you again. Yeah. Thanks thank for you. coming in again. My pleasure. It was absolutely great. Yeah, it was absolutely great. William Cohen is the author. Why Wall Street Matters is the book. Uh, yeah, listen, man. Thanks for coming in. Really, really appreciated it. Thank you. So, I have 15 minutes now to get my NCAA picks up. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, my God. Are you going to – you think you'll make it? No. Who's going to be your winner? I have no idea. I mean, I I'm, no I'm, idea. I'm always a Gonzaga fan. Been for 17 years it? for no good reason. I don't even follow it. Do you yeah. follow it? Oh, I'm a Duke a... grad. I, of course I follow oh. it. I always <laughs> make the mistake of going, you know, thinking Duke is going to do it again. See, I, I used to be, like, growing up, I was a huge Duke fan, like Christian Leitner and all that. Of course. And then I sat next to a few graduates of Duke. Uh, you couldn't stand them anymore. <laughs> they're, 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 everybody, they're like the Yankees. Everybody loves yeah, to yeah. hate them. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. Maybe you'll have time. Grocer William Cohen, thanks thank for coming again. in again. Thank again. Everyone, thank you for listening. Hope you got a lot out of it. I'm sure you did, and we'll catch up with you very soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.